0: Hello, and welcome to Diving Deep part of the Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Corr. I'm also host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was a CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want Information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. The growing unaffordability of medicine for patients is becoming a massive issue for patients and most likely will be a campaign issue as the presidential race becomes increasingly contentious. Let's begin by exploring this issue in depth today. After that, I want to ask you about the recent acquisition of Geisinger by Kaiser Permanente. What are your thoughts on healthcare affordability, Robbie?
1: Jeremy, I concur with your perspective that US healthcare is in financial crisis. Patients are feeling it acutely. Nearly 90 million or more than one in four Americans are enrolled in Medicaid, the public health insurance program for people with low income. Medical bills are a leading cause of bankruptcy as 100 million Americans remain saddled with medical debt. And all of this is occurring in the world's most wealthiest nation, a country that spends 18% of its GDP on healthcare which is nearly twice as much money per citizen as any other nation. And as we've pointed out before, our country has the worst healthcare outcomes amongst 12 of its richest peers. I'm confident our nation can do much better. What's your diagnosis
0: of the underlying problem?
1: Jeremy, thinking about this frustrating lack of healthcare progress, I'm reminded the day I left college in Boston to begin medical school in New Haven. Two friends helped me hitch a U-Haul trailer to my car and load my meager belongings into it. When it was time to exit the crowded parking lot, I could see that the only way out was by backing out. So I checked the rearview mirror, shifted gear into reverse and turned the wheel to the right. The U-Haul zigged left. Then I turned the wheel to the left and the trailer zagged right. Ultimately, I had to unhitch the trailer, turn the car around and rehitch it again. In order to leave, what I see is that in today's healthcare system, hospital administrators, pharmaceutical CEOs, and physicians are similarly focused on the rearview mirror. They're zigging and zagging, but failing to make forward progress. But there's a big difference between their circumstances and mine. I wanted, and I tried to avoid zigging and zagging, while the majority of healthcare leaders today, they continue to choose and prefer that result. How does the zigging and zagging hurt patients, Robbie? Jeremy, let's take hospitals as an example. Data demonstrate that demand is falling for inpatient services. Increasingly, medical care that would have been done in a hospital is now being provided in a surgical center, an outpatient facility, or even the patient's home. In almost any other industry, falling demand would result in lower prices. But that's not what's happening. That's not what we see in healthcare. Instead. Hospital administrators have acquired surrounding hospitals to gain market share. And having gained the market share, they raise their prices in order to preserve revenue and profits. This is true whether the facilities are for profit or not for profit. Monopolistic pricing is always bad for consumers, it blocks innovation. In medicine, this approach also harms people and takes lives. I thought Congress passed
0: legislation to at least make this problem transparent. Wasn't that the case? Jeremy, you're right. On
1: January 1st of 2021, the hospital price transparency rule went into effect. The law requires hospitals to make public a consumer-friendly list of the prices that they charge for items and services. As you suggest, Congress's intent was to demystify hospital pricing, making it possible for patients to know how much they'll pay for an inpatient stay or routine procedure before choosing a hospital. And the hope was that by making the information transparent, patients, at least for elective procedures, would drive to the lower-priced inpatient facilities. Two years after the rule took effect, however, patient advocacy groups report that only one in four hospitals are compliant. Hospital industry leaders insist it's just too difficult and expensive to make pricing information easily accessible to the public. The reality is different. Hospital administrators, they simply don't want the public to see how hospital pricing works. They like keeping patients in the dark.
0: Isn't hospital pricing similar to retail where every customer pays a similar amount?
1: Not at all. Hospitals raise or lower prices based on who's paying. Sometimes they do so by a factor of four or five. Uninsured patients, they receive the highest bills, whereas public payers like Medicare, they write checks for a fraction of that amount. And there's a huge difference between the fee schedule and what each insurance company pays and an equal amount of variation among what each member of a different insurance company is charged. Healthcare fees weren't always so convoluted. For most of the 20th century, hospitals aligned their rates with the actual cost of providing care. Private insurers paid similar rates as government-funded programs. But in 1997, the Balanced Budget Act changed the math for all payers. In an effort to lower healthcare spending, the government slashed Medicare payments for doctors and hospitals expecting hospitals would take the opportunity to increase efficiency of care through innovative measures. That's not what happened. Instead, hospital leaders started zigging and zagging. Can you explain how the zigging and zagging occur? To offset lost revenue from Medicare, hospital leaders cost shifted to private companies. They disproportionately raised prices each year since then for private businesses more than the increase in cost of the medical care provided to their employees. As a result, private insurers now pay twice as much as the government for identical procedures. That's an example of the zig. But as businesses began to shoulder more of the financial burden, corporate leaders transferred the excessive costs they were paying for healthcare to their workforce to ever higher deductible health plans. Today, more than half of American workers are enrolled in a plan that requires families to pay as much as $5,000 a year before their insurance even kicks in. That is a zag. Most recently, to lower prices, employers and private insurers threatened to exclude expensive hospitals from their coverage networks. In response inpatient facilities, they agreed to hold prices stable, but then they began adding what's called facility charges. They added them to patient bills for every service provided, whether it was a laboratory test, a radiologic procedure, or a doctor consultation. What most people don't realize is that on average, 50% of a hospital's revenue now actually comes from outpatient, not inpatient services and getting an MRI or even seeing a doctor, it can cost twice as much when that exact same care is provided in a hospital building or a physician's office owned by the hospital. And that's compared to receiving identical services in the community. Jeremy, none of this constitutes innovation or forward progress. It's just zigging and zagging. What's
0: another example of zigging and zagging in the healthcare industry?
1: A visible and quite problematic area is the pharmaceutical industry. Drug prices over the past decade in the United States have risen faster than prices in any other healthcare sector, including the hospital industry that we just discussed. To begin to address this problem, last August, President Biden signed into law the Inflation Reduction Act, which for the first time will allow Medicare to institute what's called fair price maximum for drug companies. Unfortunately, the law won't go into effect until 2026. And even then, it will only cover 10 Part D medications in the first year. And even though it will exert only a modest check on the drug industry, big farmers are already fighting back with tens of millions of dollars earmarked for lobbying and campaign contributions. Merck has already filed the legal challenge, and we're seeing nearly all drug companies zigging and zagging by raising prices on hundreds of other medications to offset potential future reductions.
0: Has this always been the case?
1: No, Jeremy. Historically, U.S. pharmaceutical companies invested heavily in research and development and that led to the creation of many highly effective medications in the latter half of the 20th century. These were the drugs that helped patients fight infections, prevent heart attacks, treat cancer, and reduce the risk of a stroke. But by the 21st century, Congress passed a series of laws that benefited the drug giants, extending the length of patent protections, allowing direct to consumer drug advertising, and keeping generic medications and competing drug companies at bay. So that's when the zigging and zagging began. As drug costs soared, insurers hired pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, to negotiate lower prices directly from drug manufacturers and to figure out alternatives to many of the costliest medications. Response manufacturers issued rebates to PBMs, who then pocketed the money in a return, included many excessively priced drugs on formularies, even when there were less expensive options for insurers and patients. As costs climbed, insurers forced patients to pay more out of pocket in an effort to make them uh, choose less expensive alternatives. Drug companies then responded by giving patients coupons to fund the out-of-pocket costs, insurers then refuse to credit patient deductibles when they use the drug company, coupon, and so on. As a result of all this zigzagging, more and more Americans must choose whether to compromise their health or face financial destruction. Americans are having to ration their medications until the next paycheck comes. And we know that 25% of families in the U.S. give their children with type one diabetes less insulin than their doctors prescribed because the family can't afford the full dose. The United States pays twice as much as most European nations for the exact same drugs. None of this makes any sense, but that's the reality of American medicine. How about doctors
0: and insurers? Are they zigging and zagging as well?
1: Jeremy, it's incredibly confusing and time-consuming for patients to figure out whether a diagnostic test or treatment will be covered by their insurance and how much the insurance company will pay. It hasn't always been this way. For most of the 20th century, patients saw their physicians in person. They received care, and then they paid a modest, maybe 20% of the doctor's bill. For decades, that approach to reimbursement, it worked. But as complex new treatments were introduced, Physicians began charging higher and higher prices. To limit health care inflation, as did every other part of the industry, a series of zigzagging maneuvers began. First, insurers put in place rigid prior authorization requirements. In response, doctors refused to contract with insurers, generating surprise bills for patients and threatening to send collection agencies to people's homes when they didn't pay. In response, the government stepped in, forcing doctors, hospitals, and insurance companies to settle pricing disputes through arbitration. To make up for the lost revenue, what we've seen is that primary care doctors have begun to charge so-called concierge fees to use their services. And we've seen specialists signed up with private equity firms to gain market control and force insurers to pay higher rates for the procedures. When it comes to zigging and zagging, forward progress proves impossible for everyone. Hospitals, insurers, drug companies, and the providers of care. How bad is the total problem, Robbie? Jeremy, zigzagging not only has prevented progress in healthcare delivery, but it also has contributed to soaring medical costs. The United States now spends $12,914 per American each year for health care. And that translates to somewhere between twenty dollars and $30,000 per family or one-third of the average household income, which currently is $70,784. If rather than staring stubbornly in the rearview mirror, industry leaders drove forward found innovative ways to make care more efficient and effective. We could address the affordability issue for patients. We could invest in decreasing burnout among clinicians and we could improve the health of our nation, but so far there's little evidence that insurers, drug manufacturers or providers are interested in doing so. If they wanted to drive forward, how might they do so? Jeremy, there are dozens of ways they could lower costs and simultaneously raise quality. Let me give you three examples. First, hospitals could shift more procedures to less expensive outpatient sites, eliminate delays in treatment across the weekends, and reduce the number of hospital beds needed nationally by a third. And rather than keeping low volume facilities open, they would close many smaller hospitals that lack sufficient patient volume to deliver high quality cost-effective medical treatment. We could lower hospital expenses significantly and hospitals are the number one contributor to total medical costs for the United States. Second, as we discussed, when it comes to the price of medications, the U.S. could follow the lead of most European nations. In France, Germany, England, and nearly everywhere else, the government negotiates prescription drug prices on behalf of patients. And they base it on drug efficiency and R&D costs. If the U.S. priced medications, similar to the other industrialized nations of the world, nearly all Americans could afford the necessary drugs that they need. And finally, doctors could join together to form high-performing medical groups. And then would work with insurers and self-funded businesses to replace the current fee-for-service methodology with capitation- at what I like to think of as the delivery system level. This would involve paying an annual fee to groups of doctors and hospitals to care for the medical needs of a defined and specific population of individuals for the upcoming year. Unlike a fee-for-service approach that rewards volume, even when the care adds no value, habitation rewards the value of care provided. Doctors and hospitals do better when they prevent medical problems, avoid complications from chronic disease, maximize patient safety, and achieve superior clinical outcomes. This shift from fee-for-service to that would create incentives for providers to find innovative ways to treat patients, implement modern technology, and avoid medical problems from happening in the first place. But instead of driving forward with these types of improvements, each part of the healthcare industry continues to zig and zag, stalling progress, frustrating patients, and making medical care unaffordable for nearly half of all Americans today.
0: Let's shift topics and discuss the acquisition of Geisinger by Kaiser. What happened there, Robbie?
1: Jeremy, healthcare's most recent billion-dollar deal took the industry by surprise, leaving medical experts and hospital leaders grappling to comprehend its implications. California-based Kaiser Foundation Health Plan Hospitals, which make up the insurance and facilities half of Kaiser Permanente, announced the acquisition of Geisinger, a Pennsylvania-based health system that was once acknowledged by President Obama for delivering high-quality care. On regulatory approval, Kaiser will become the first organization to join. Rise it Health, which is Kaiser Foundation's newly created $5 billion subsidiary. According to Kaiser, the aim is to build, quotes a portfolio of like-minded, non value-oriented, community-based health systems anchored in their respective communities.
0: I assume after having spent 18 years as the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the half of Kaiser Permanente responsible for the delivery of medical care, You took great interest in this announcement, am I right?
1: Not only did I take great interest, but a huge number of other folks did as well. My phone, Jeremy, rang off the hook for weeks with dozens of calls from reporters, policy experts, healthcare executives, and clinicians. What did they want to know? The first question most calls asked was about Kaiser's motivation. Why did Kaiser do this? The people calling me figured it had to be more to the acquisition than the press releases indicated. Although I didn't have inside information, I believe they were right, and here's why. Kaiser Permanente has a long and ongoing reputation for delivering nation-leading care. The organization has consistently earned the highest quality and patient satisfaction rankings from the National Committee for Quality Assurance, that's the NCQA, the Leapfrog Group, J.D. Power & Associates, and Medicare. And yet, despite a 78-year history, dozens of hospitals and 13 million members across 18 states, Kaiser Permanente is still considered a coastal, not a national health system. KP maintains a huge market share in California and a strong presence in the mid-Atlantic states, Yet the organization has failed repeatedly to replicate that success in other geographies. And many expansion efforts in the past failed with Kaiser having to exit New York, Texas, Missouri, and
0: North Carolina. What difference does it make whether Kaiser is
1: seen as a national or regional player? Jeremy, there's at least two compelling reasons why the Kaiser Foundation Health Plan and Hospitals wished to become a national brand. The first is influence. Elected officials and regulatory bodies often invite healthcare's biggest players to set legislative agendas and carve out national policy. At that table, there's a limited number of seats, and by shedding his reputation as a local health system, Kaiser could consistently earn one. A second is long-term survival. In recent years, companies like Amazon, CVS, and Walmart have been acquiring healthcare organizations and medical groups that provide primary care, telehealth, home health, and specialty care services. These retail giants, they're spending up to $13 billion per acquisition, and they're bringing highly respected and successful healthcare companies, ones like One Medical, Oak Street Health, Signify, PillPack, and many others into their organizations. I see this like an army preparing for war. These corporate behemoths are amassing the components needed to battle the traditional healthcare incumbents and ultimately oust them entirely. According to Fortune magazine, among the nation's six largest companies, and that's based on revenue, four are aggressively moving into the healthcare space. Amazon. CVS, Walmart, and United Healthcare. And with an insurance competitor like United being five times as massive in size as Kaiser, the health plan is vulnerable. How much of a
0: difference will this acquisition make for Kaiser?
1: Jeremy, the Geisinger deal expands Kaiser's footprint. It adds 600,000 patients, 10 hospitals, 100 specialty and primary care clinics. And if Reisinger can add five or so more similarly sized groups in the future, that would be a 25% total increase in patients associated with Kaiser. Furthermore, given Geisinger's, Geisinger's name, the acquisition lends gravitas and expands Kaiser's reputation into a new geography. At the same time, the Geisinger acquisition burdens Kaiser with a 2022 operating loss of $239 million.
0: From your perspective, what's the broader take-home message for doctors and hospitals?
1: Jeremy, I believe the lesson physicians and hospital administrators should draw from this acquisition is that size matters. The days of solo physicians and standalone hospitals, they're over. Nostalgia for medicine's folksy, homespun past, it's understandable, but futile. To survive, healthcare players must get bigger quickly or team up with someone who can. If Kaiser feels this type of pressure, every healthcare player should.
0: What's the second question callers wanted to have answered?
1: Jeremy, almost everyone I spoke with understood Kaiser's desire for greater national influence. but They were less sure how this deal will affect Geisinger health. Geisinger's Peninsula-based hospitals and clinics, have been locked in territorial battles for years with surrounding health systems. Powerful competitors like the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center have acquired medical groups in the areas where Geisinger is located, and they've taken market share away from Geisinger. More recently, the pandemic, combined with staffing shortages and national inflation, challenged Geisinger's clinical performance and eroded its bottom line. Assuming Kaiser plans to invest, let's say $1 billion in each of the four or five health systems that it's planning to acquire, that surge in cash inflow it will provide Geisinger with temporary financial safety. But the bigger question is whether Kaiser will be able to improve Geisinger's value proposition enough to allow it to grow its market share. If not, We can predict that the current problems impacting Geisinger will resurface as soon as the Kaiser's money runs out. Based on your experience
0: as the CEO of the Permanente half of Kaiser Permanente, how will Kaiser add major operational value for Geisinger?
1: In public comments, Kaiser leaders have spoken of the acquisition as an opportunity for Ryzen to improve the health of millions of people. Although the experts who called me understood Kaiser's value intent, they questioned how Kaiser would be able to deliver on that promise since the Permanente medical groups weren't involved in the deal. If hypothetically Kaiser Permanente leaders were able at some point to strike a deal to collaborate in the future and running Geisinger, Permanente physician leaders could bring tremendous knowledge, experience, and expertise to the table. But otherwise, I agree with those who express doubt and were skeptical that Kaiser alone will be able to significantly improve Geisinger's clinical performance.
0: Can you expand on why omitting the permanente medical groups is so problematic?
1: Happy to, Jeremy. Health plans and insurance companies, they play an important role in financing medical care. They possess rich data on performance, and they can offer incentives that boost access to quality care. But insurers, they don't work directly with individual doctors. They don't help to coordinate medical care or advance clinical solutions on behalf of patients. And without strong physician leadership, the pace of positive change, it slows to a crawl. Kaiser Permanente's national leadership in quality outcomes it results from the medical groups. As an example of the difference that this type of physician-led leadership can provide and achieve, research conducted within the Permanente Medical Group found that it took only three years to turn a proven clinical advance into standard practice. And that compares to an average of 17 years, or six times as long for the rest of the nation based on the analysis done by the rand corporation for decades the secret sauce for kaiser permanente it's been the cohesive success of its three parts the insurance kaiser health plan the hospital based kaiser foundation hospitals and the care delivery driven by the permanente medical group when leaders of each of the parts collaborate and coordinate the results are nation leading in contrast When fiction arises, performance falls and the organization invariably fails. Can
0: you give a few examples of the value created for patients by this three-part structure in terms of clinical results?
1: Happy to do so, Jeremy. In fact, I could provide data on dozens of ways that Kaiser Permanente has led the nation in quality and patient care. But here are the three you requested. First, hypertension is the number one cause of strokes and a major contributor to kidney failure. For us, the country it's successfully controlled for only 60% of patients. In contrast, in Kaiser Permanente, hypertension is successfully controlled for 90% of people with elevated blood pressure. The second example is specific to cardiovascular disease. Advances in medical information and current medications now allow doctors to prevent heart attacks and strokes with an ever greater frequency. But success depends on every physician following the most up to date approaches and applying the most advanced technology. KP has been able to do this. As a result, patients enrolled in KP experience 30% fewer deaths from heart attacks and strokes than patients in the rest of the country. Finally, there's cancer. This is a leading cause of death in the United States. A combination of highly effective screening programs, early detection, and world renowned centers of excellence in surgery have resulted in outstanding clinical results. Today, KP members experience 20% fewer deaths from colon cancer than individuals in the rest of the country.
0: Relative to sharing leadership with medical groups, what are the biggest lessons?
1: One big lesson is that insurance by itself, that doesn't drive major improvements in medicine. It must be combined between a forward-looking insurer and innovative high-performing clinicians. And when that happens, patients achieve the best clinical outcomes. But when it doesn't, quality lags and patients suffer. There's a second takeaway that I think applies to doctors everywhere. And that is that now is the time to join forces with other clinicians in your community. Together you can collaborate to improve quality. You can augment access and you can make care more affordable for patients. And simultaneously, this is the time for the insurers and the retail giants to figure out which medical groups can deliver the best care and to make them their partners. Neither side, I do not believe, can flourish alone.
0: What about one more common question these clinicians and healthcare experts who called you wanted answered?
1: Jeremy, almost all my conversations ended with this query. Will this deal work? I told everyone it's too early to be sure, but as I look years down the road, there is one part of the deal that gives me significant doubt. Today Geisinger uses a hybrid reimbursement model lending both value-based care payments with traditional fee-for-service insurance plans. In addition to offering its own coverage through the Geisinger Health Plan, it contracts with a variety of other insurance companies. Rather than all the medical care being provided by Geisinger physicians, the health system relies heavily on outside doctors scattered across the geography and paid on a fee-for-service basis. And rarely have I seen this hybrid approach be successful. Why is that? Jeremy, most healthcare observers understand the inherent flaw in the FIFA service model. The more you do, the more you earn. Whether it does any good or not, that doesn't affect payment. Of course, FIFA service is how nearly all financial transactions take place in America. You provide a service, you earn a fee. But in medicine, with insurance paying most of the bill, this financial model results in frequent overtesting and overtreatment with minimal of any improvement in clinical outcomes, according to a huge amount of research. The value based alternative to fee for service is capitation. As we mentioned earlier, capitation involves paying a single fee upfront for all the medical care a defined population of patients. Is likely to need in the upcoming year based on their age and health status. Having received that payment, the better an organization is at preventing disease and avoiding complications from chronic illness, the greater success will be both clinically and financially. What many people fail to understand when it comes to capitation is that it makes a big difference who receives the lump sum payment. In the case of Kaiser Permanente, capitated payments are made directly to the medical group and the physicians who are responsible for providing the medical care both on an outpatient and inpatient basis. In almost every other health system that is supposedly capitated, it's the insurance company that collects the capitated payment, but then it pays the medical providers on a fee-for-service basis. And even though this arrangement is often referred to as capitated, the incentives are overwhelmingly tied to the volume of care, not the value of care. If the care provided to patients is being reimbursed through a fee-for-service methodology, then the way that care will be delivered, the way that providers will approach medical problems will reflect this etiology, this methodology, even when the insurance company is being paid on a capitated basis. And in a mixed payment model, doctors and hospitals are almost always prioritizing the higher paying fee-for-service patients over the capitated ones. And when doctors receive most of their income through fee-for-service, it's almost impossible to get them to provide the preventive care and population health needed that has been shown to result in far superior clinical outcomes and better health for our patients.
0: What are the consequences of seeing these two groups of patients differently?
1: Jeremy, when I think about these conflicting incentives, I'm reminded of a prominent medical group in California. It had a main entrance for its fee-for-service patients and a second, much smaller one off to the side for capitated individuals. I doubt the time spent with each patient, but the overall care provided was equal for both groups. When income is based on the quantity of care, not its quality, clinicians spend nearly all the time focused on treating the complications from chronic disease rather than preventing these problems, these complications, these diseases in the first place. And that does little to elevate quality or maximize health or make medical care more affordable. Jeremy, Geisinger has walked this tight route in the past, but as economic pressures mount, I fear the health system's doctors will find the two sets of incentives conflicting and difficult to navigate, and they will drift away from the positive aspects of capitation in order to be able to maintain the revenue and income that they desire. What is the big
0: lesson relative to payment model to doctors and hospitals?
1: Jeremy, the big lesson is the following. As financial pressures increase across the United States, the approaches that worked in the past are likely to fail in the future. All healthcare organizations will need to make a decision. Should they keep trying to drive volume and prices up through a fee-for-service methodology? Or should they shift to capitation? Caught in the middle of these two payment methodologies, that's a prescription failure. Examining the healthcare acquisitions made by Amazon and CVS, it's likely these retail giants have decided to move aggressively towards a model much more like Kaiser Permanente, one that brings insurance, pharmacy, physicians, and sophisticated IT systems under one roof. These retail giants, along with Walmart, are aggressively marching down a path towards capitation. They're focused on Medicare Advantage, the value-based option for Americans over the age of 65 as their entry point. And once they're successful in this population, you can be sure that they will approach self-funded businesses and offer a capitated approach with a cost guarantee with promises around quality and access. And having done that, all of insurance is likely to follow in the footsteps. So far, Geisinger has been able to hedge its best and maintain a hybrid revenue stream. I just doubt they can do so successfully in the future, and that leads to a final question.
0: What is that final question, Robbie?
1: Jeremy, we can expect that over the next decade, hospital systems, insurers, and retailers will battle for healthcare supremacy. The most recent Kaiser-Geisinger deal It reflects an industry that's undergoing massive change as health systems face, intensifying pressure to remain relevant. The most important issue to figure out is whether these shifts will ultimately help or harm patients. It's obviously too early to know for certain, but I'm actually optimistic that the outcome will be positive. Whether or not the retail giants displace the incumbents They will redefine what it takes to win in healthcare for the future. For all their faults, companies like Amazon and Walmart care a lot about meeting the needs of customers, a mindset rarely found in the current healthcare world. As these companies grow ever larger, they'll place increasing consumer-oriented demands on doctors and hospitals. And this will require care providers to deliver higher quality medical care at more affordable prices. With both a consumer-focused strategy and a value-based methodology for economic success, the retailers will only want to hire and contract with the best doctors and hospitals. They'll kick the underachievers in each community to the curb. They'll use their sophisticated IT systems to better coordinate and innovate medical care on behalf of patients. Insurers, hospitals, and doctors who fail to keep up, we can predict that they will fall behind. Insurers, hospitals, and doctors who fail to keep up, we can predict they will be left behind. Over time, patients will find themselves with far more control, and they'll be able to get superior outcomes to what exists today. I recognize there are many risks involved, but when I put all the pieces together, I'm optimistic that the result will be good for the health of our nation. In almost every industry where disruption occurs, Consumers have benefited. It's hard to imagine why healthcare will not be the same.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare and Apple Podcast, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day.